Broadcasting from the Stolen Droids Hangout, it's the Stolen Droids Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stolen Droids Podcast. I'm Schmitty. I am And I'm Zook. And uh, we are here at CES 2018. Woohoo! This is our first time back to CES in four years. Yep, four. We thought it was just three, but it turns out time moves in a different way than we thought. I know, right? We're all actually a little bit older than we all thought we were. Funny how that happens. Mm. <laughs> um, and honestly, I wouldn't know it was uh, four years ago if we hadn't taken video last time, too. Yeah, they're all in our Google Drive. <laughs> well, the, the other big indicator for me, at least at the time, is uh, the year is a different number. That, yes. was, a, that was a shock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... It, was interesting seeing the development, and we'll, we'll be talking about it through the show. The stuff we saw four years ago that was cutting edge that now is everywhere. Right, right. And surprisingly, some of the tech that is still there at the show and hasn't taken off. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Um, hey, before we get started, big shout out to our friends over at trekradio.net, kryptonradio.com, stitcher.com, Geek Factor Radio, and Radio KSCR. Um, and for all of our friends over at Patreon, if you want to become a Patreon subscriber and producer, get early access to episodes, and basically we just consider you a slightly better human being, head on over to patreon.com slash stolen droids where you can help support us for less than the co- cost of a soda per day. I mean, we're worth it, right? Love fewer calories. Your dentist will thank you. I don't know. Honestly, between the three of us, I think we have a lot of calories. Yeah, and cavities. And cavities. Um, this is also probably going to be our best sounding episode. We're using new equipment here. And this is the first time the three of us have recorded in person together in four years. Yes, actually. We, the last time we recorded, we were in a closet. This time, we've actually upgraded to dining room table. So right. We're moving um, on up in the world. <laughs> last time we recorded, we recorded from a single microphone. It was an omnidirectional microphone on a table in a closet that we had lined with the comforters and towels from the hotel room. Because uh, it was as close as we could get to a sound booth. And now we actually have a mixer. We have microphones. We we kind of know what we're doing. We have big boy toys. <laughs> and I'd like to point out, uh, Dr. Squishy here was skeptical I'd be able to get this set up. Uh, Schmitty said I could get it set up, but definitely not in less than 15 minutes. I think I was close to the 10-minute mark. From when you guys from said, when that. I said that. From when you I, said that, I, yes. meant, I meant from the beginning because it had already. Yeah, I'd been sitting on the smart aleck thoughts for quite a long time <laughs> before I actually gave voice to them. They're... Oh, I was just starting the clock from when you guys started saying stuff. Oh. I, I had made sure that 15 minutes had elapsed before I said that, so I wasn't wrong. Oh, so it was just an immediate <laughs> win, huh? Yay. Yeah. So on and off, I've been a contributor to Soul Android since fairly soon to the beginning. Right. right. Okay. The beginning was 10 years ago at the early stage of the, the site, yep, about seven about. for the podcast. Okay. I think I can comfortably say that in the seven years and various podcasts that we have done, I have never, aside from the last CES with one microphone, never been able to record successfully with both of you guys in the same place. Tried to do multiple mic recordings before. We've never been able to make it work. And I'm not saying today is going to break that streak because we're not done yet. But we shall see. <laughs> you jinxed this at the three-minute mark. That's what I do here. Thank you very much, Dr. Squishy. Okay. <laughs> um, so, CES 2018. We were mainly able to only get through the Las Vegas Convention Center. And I say only because four years ago when we came, it was the Las Vegas Convention Center. There was a couple hospitality suites in some of the hotels. Um, this year, the Las Vegas Convention Center is only half of CES now. Yeah, there's at least eight eight venues, I think. Yeah, it was kind eight, of insane. Yeah, yeah I, 
And uh, this is actually we're recording on the last day, recording on Friday. I'm going to try to get out and check out a couple of things. I might get over the sands. I may just go back to the convention center and check out the small booths. But uh, an overwhelming amount of stuff. You reach a certain point at CES where you just have to accept, I'm not going to get to see everything. Uh, I just have to keep walking. And yeah, that's another cool TV, but we got to keep going. Yeah. And, and spending three days in, in the Tech East... We still didn't see everything there. There were a lot of stuff we just had to bypass because we knew there were other things we wanted to get to. So, And if we're being 100% honest, there's some stuff there, too. Uh, I, I would best describe as filler. Yeah. It's mm. like, <laughs> especially the aisle with all the, the used and refurbished items. What was that all yeah, about? Yeah, that was a little weird. <laughs> we came across a couple. Of, I think they were hoping that Big Lots was going to have some buyers here. Or you know, Walgreens, the kind of electronics you see at, uh, at a CVS, which I, I guess this is a great place to, to get that stuff marketed. Uh, they all seem like they were coming from the Middle East, too. Yeah. There was a lot out of Israel, hmm. actually. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was really kind of funny. It's like, oh, man, that was an awesome personal assistant AI-powered robot that that company just came out. Let's turn the corner. Oh, used flip phones <laughs> and TV remotes. And old speaker sets. Yeah. Okay. You do see a little bit of everything here. One thing I, I took away is a, an improvement, at least it seemed, over last time. Ingrid, it had been four years. It seemed like the themes were better organized. Very much the, so. Video game things were with video game things. There was a section for AI, a section for 3D printers, a section for TVs. That was wonderful because it helped you to just to focus if you were just going to look for one thing. There was a bit of a downside to that, though, because as amazing... As giant televisions are, as amazing as 3D printers are, at a certain point, it's another giant television. It's just another 3D printer. Oh, yours prints in wood. Cool. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, the, okay, so let, let's start off with 3D printing. Yep. Shall we? Yeah, when we were here four years ago, that was one of my takeaways of, from four years ago is how fast technology moves. In that you could tell that when they booked the booths four years ago... 3D printing barely existed. It wasn't a thing. In the six or nine months until CES happened 2014, 3D printing had taken off. They were in small booths over in the corner and were flooded with people. This time, what would you say, 50 different booths of 3D printing? At least. Well, and, and not just 3D printers. Like, the actual filament suppliers were there too yeah. our filament is better for this reason like you know an industry has kind of hit a certain level of maturity when the vendors who supply the materials for that industry are vying for it's like uh, hey not only do we build houses we build it with the best plywood that's not a perfect example but right yeah there were, you could tell that some of the materials were of a higher quality um we we did have a great this was on day one i think um a great zook breaking moment uh, we came across our new friends at Lulzbot, uh, L-U-L-Z-B-O-T, and it's a 3D printing company. But what they decided to do at the show to set themselves apart is they were 3D printing 3D printers. Right. Yes, all of the internal components were being 3D printed at the show. They were building, I think their goal was 20 machines, something to that effect, and they were going to give them away. So... The great Zook break moment came when he asked the question of, of how long do the pieces last? Which, admittedly, I asked incorrectly. Yes. I, I worded that wrong. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he the, the person then responded, well, if a part breaks, you just 3D print another one. And his mind was blown. I, it took, <laughs> it's, it kind of had to blank and reset and reevaluate the question and say, 
No, he did answer that correctly. He means it. Holy crap. So we realized that with this 3D printer, you buy it, you get it home, you get it out of the package and get it set up. The first thing you run is a set of replacement parts. And then you put them on a shelf somewhere. So that six months, a year down the line, one specific piece breaks. You pull it out, you pop in the replacement piece that you 3D printed already, make a, make a new backup copy, and you're on your, you're on your way and back in business. Right, right. Um, what was really cool about that was uh, was that they're an actual open source shop. Yeah, yeah. They were talking. They were talking to us and said that they're so open source they don't even use like proprietary software on their computers. They don't use Windows. Yeah. Everything is open a lot, source. A lot of penguin people. A lot of penguin mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Um, but it also means that all the designs for their parts are also open source. And so if we wanted to, we could just go and download the files and make our own right now. Uh, obviously, there were some parts of it that you can't 3D print the stepper motors, the the chains and stuff like that. In the chassis. In the yeah. chassis, yeah. But if you were so inclined, you could go and source those parts. Yeah, and and you don't have to use their their version of Linux. You can do this from Mac or Windows. And that's that's just it goes to show how standardized the industry is now. It's pretty pretty cool. Right. Uh, and okay, so we kind of made the uh, the decision when we were we were riding back, we we came back on the monorail and we were talking about it. Is 3D printing completely mature? Is it ready for the mainstream? Is it ready to go? Can you go and buy grandma a printer and for Christmas and she's just make it chumping out stuff like the grandmas of old, you know, crocheting stuff for their grandkids. Here, look, I, I 3D printed you a spoon. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's reached that level of maturity yet. I mean, as much as they hype it at uh, at the... It, at each of the booths and how much it's hyped online, you still hear the horror stories of, yeah, this took me five hours to get set up, and then I still had to recalibrate it after a few prints. Um, I I bought a filament that doesn't quite work with my printer, so I had to buy a new one, uh, had to buy a new head or something like that. So to me, it's still not 100% plug-and-play, at least most of the printers. There might be some 3D printers that really are plug-and-play and, and anyone could could do it within, you know, plug it in and within five minutes have a print but it seems like most mo- in most scenarios there's still a lot of fidgeting around and you have to know at least to some degree what you're doing a little bit so sure and i i'd agree that it's i'm kind of somewhere in between i think the the technology is there the price is coming down dramatically to the point where your average person a few years ago they were going to have to spend two or three thousand dollars now you spend three or four hundred dollars to be able to buy a, a home kit, to be able to make up to you know six inch pieces, um, so I, I very much think that it's it's there. It just isn't quite in the public consciousness net as far as you know. It's not going to be three D printing clubs now instead of knitting clubs for grandma, maybe moms. But uh, there's a lot there that's aimed at the home crafter. Well, now let's you, you mentioned that, and my kids actually play with the three D printer at school. It's part of their after school program. They have a a steam group, you know, system st- steam because they add art in. Oh, okay, cool. So, no, that's yeah. cool. I thought the A was an and. And they were just saying it because steam sounded cooler. <laughs> yeah, well, some groups might, but you know, science, technology, engineering, math—that's STEM—and add art in there and become steam because all of those things are being cut by public schools. Mm. Um, but that's another show. Uh, exactly. Uh, so they've been playing with it. So maybe it's kind of they're getting the younger generation ready so that by the time that they reach kind of our age. And it is more mainstream. They're more familiar with it. Yeah. My big hang-up on it is still that I don't think 
the, the entire premise of 3D printing is wonderful. You can print nearly anything you need, but if we're being honest, how often do you need to do that? Um, we're sitting here recording three guys around a table with our microphones. Let's say one of us breaks our microphone stand. Uh, we could 3D print a new holder for it, right? We mm -hmm. could do that. Yeah. Sure. But that's not something I need to do every day. Um, and if, if it's not something I'm doing every day, am I willing to spend $1,000 for the ability to replace or design or rapidly prototype parts maybe once a month? Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably not. And, and even some of the stuff they were showing us, look how closely we can make these gears. Isn't this awesome? Well, that's great for an industrial user who needs to rapidly prototype things. It's not so great for the home user who wants it to... Uh, make little doodads or whatnot. Yeah. Now, one other thing I, I worry about with 3D printing, there was that fear a few years ago, and there's a really good documentary on Netflix about that, that addressed it, the fear of now someone's going to 3D print a gun. Okay. Well, and they have. And, the, and yeah. they have, yes. Yeah. So that was the nightmare scenario when 3D printers were first really coming in. I'm waiting for, and, and I think I'm the first to dub it this, I'm waiting for the Lars Ulrich moment. I'm waiting for the moment when companies realize that putting high-quality 3D printers into someone's house has just taken copyright claims to a whole new place. Well, they, there was talk about that a couple of years ago. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember we did report on something about that. Um, I want to say a lawsuit was brought against people for <coughs> making high-quality 3D scans of uh, copyrighted or proprietary mm -hmm. things like a watch or... right. You know, 3D printing out a Mercedes-Benz badge or sure. something. Yeah, I mean, we saw several that had printed the Hulk because Hulk's big. He looked good. However, is Disney now going to realize that's money being left on the table? And if you print up a Hulk at home, you're going to get sued. Yeah. Maybe it's going to... A lot of those things... Uh, so, I'm not an artist. I don't have an artistic bone in my body. Um, if I wanted to 3D print the Hulk... It's going to look like a stick figure and a really bad one at that. So what I do is I'd go online and download a design. Maybe what the model is going to shift to, uh, to use your example there, Squishy, is that if I want to print the Hulk, I have to buy the Hulk design from Disney. Sure. And if I don't, then I'm pirating. Or if I'm an artist and create one from scratch, that's a little differently because you could, you could take a piece of clay and sculpt the Hulk and then you're just a sculptor. You're just an artist. You know, you can say, well, I just made art based on this character versus yeah. I stole a piece of art. Sure. I, I don't know. I, this is my thought on it. Yeah. That raises another question of if Disney allows you to buy it, you buy it and print it once, great. You buy it and print it 100 times and put, like, different paint patterns on it and then sell them at, at like, Comic-Con or whatever, then then we have problems, right? Yep. Um, so... Well, I wonder if they'll ever get to a point where you not only pay for for the pattern or the 3D model, but then somehow the print software has a way of also having a license. Or maybe a, maybe a hard count. So, yeah, yeah, you got this print, but after five prints, it's like cool. one for test and one if something goes wrong and then one for backup. And, but if after five prints, it's, it's like, expired. Yeah. So I think we asked the question earlier of has 3D printing arrived? And I think that, oddly enough, we might be able to say that it truly has arrived when companies like Disney start filing lawsuits, when they recognize, hey, there's a lot of money here, and we need to get in this yeah. game. What, what's the definition of a sport? Yeah, we, uh, we ran into a guy last night 
that uh, we'll, we'll be talking about in a little bit. He said that they had talked with ESPN about getting their league onto ESPN. And ESPN told them, once Vegas starts putting betting odds out on a thing, it's now a sport and we'll cover it. So so maybe that's, the, in kind of an inverse sense, that's the definition of when have things arrived? When people start getting sued over yes, it. <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, we talked about 3D printing and the opportunities that it can really provide for a home hobbyist or a homemaker. And we ran into a company, and their name's escaping me off the top of my Flux. head. Flux. Flux. Excuse yeah. me. Flux. Yep. And Flux was able to take 3D printing in a little bit different way. Yeah, it was this really we have a we have a video of it up on our YouTube site, and uh, they made us this really cool little uh, wooden business card with our logo uh, laser etched into it, or laser burned, I should say. And there's was really kind of cool, not just in the design, but in how modular it was. You could swap out the heads, so it wasn't just a 3D printer. It then became a laser engraver. It then became, you swap it out again, and it could draw for you. You swap it out again, and it became a vinyl cutter. And on their website, they didn't show us this at the booth, but on our website, on their website, excuse me, you can also swap out the head and make it a 3D scanner. So it actually moves over the object and scans it into the system in the first place. So something like that, I think, could really get a, a foothold into the home hobbyist market because it's multiple machines in one. Right. Yeah. And, and it was $1,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, $9.99.99, so near as makes any difference, $1,000. But it replaced a whole bunch of those other things. Right. I'm not going to spend 400 on a vinyl cutter. I'm not going to spend 400 on a on a 3D printer. Oh, but for 1000 I can get this thing with a pretty small footprint on my desk that can do all sorts of stuff. I could yeah. see the possibilities there. Right, right. On kind of right, just literally the next row over, whole bunch of uh, laser engravers, a lot of cutters. I think that same kind of CNC technology of the uh, the robotic arm moving back and forth. Someone saw it and went, "Oh well, hey, if we just do this instead, that's a totally different industry." Mm -hmm. We have a live video of me at the Glowforge booth getting uh, something kind of cut out. No, 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 no. It cut was out. cut out. It, it was, was definitely cut out. cut out. It was cut out when it was supposed to be cut out. Um, yeah. Glowforge had a great setup, and they were kind enough to let you draw a design, and they would three D uh, or they would laser burn uh, a little pendant for you. Is what we chose, and we discovered the important part of selecting the the right parameters. Right. Uh, when, when the design says engrave, make sure it's actually set to engrave and not cut. cut. Yeah. Uh, so instead of putting this groovy scallop pattern into it, it cut it into a groovy scallop pattern, which for a quarter inch or 16th piece of wood is fine. And I should say it did so quite precisely. Oh, it was a beautiful <laughs> cut. Yeah. However, they were also advertising that their laser could engrave on a MacBook, a MacBook case. Mm -hmm. On aluminum? <laughs> yes. Which also, very, very cool. But you'd want to make sure that you triple, quadruple, and many, many more times check your settings before... You cut through your $2,000 MacBook case. Or even worse, like engrave a design that turns out, oh, crap, I screwed up that part of the design or I misspelled it. I mean, <laughs> it's that whole idea of the misspelled tattoo, only it's on your $2,000 computer. Yes. And my design shows up backwards on my screen now. That's great. <laughs> so it, that also that inspired another conversation. They showed a video where uh, a little girl designed her own birthday cards and the mother uh, laser cut these wooden wood-burning type uh, birthday invitations based on that design based yeah. on that design that uh, sort of take that mom one-upsmanship to a whole new level yeah no one showed up to that birthday party <laughs> if my daughter came home and someone had said oh yeah hey you're you're invited to my party here's the invitation we saw these 
mass-produced, laser-cut, wood-engraved invitations, I immediately, irrationally hate that family. No, you are not going to that birthday party. And true enough, in that video, no one came to that birthday party. (laughs) I mean, I I know it was just staged actors, and they were just trying to uh, show all the possibilities. The mom made this you know, six-foot-tall dollhouse from the Glowforge. They made rocket-shaped treats out of chocolate using the Glowforge. Mm -hmm. All these different... The the, the son, her brother, made a drone that could fire rubber bands from the Glowforge. And that's all great to show off the capabilities of the Glowforge. But you know what? That little girl didn't have any friends. (laughs) But she could make her own. (laughs) Yes. That's what CES taught us this year. Even if your kid doesn't have friends, you now can buy them. Well, we didn't visit the sex bot area. (laughs) No, this is a family-friendly show, so we felt that our marriages and the sanctity of the show was worth just avoiding that area. Can we touch on that? Because that was a bit of news. Well, we don't have to necessarily (laughs) touch it. I mean, um, no. So this made news, and if you're wondering, no, we did not go to the strip club that had the robot strippers. Uh, We did see some video of it. Um, they're not. What you would think. (laughs) No. Well, I tried making the very valid point that, hey, if you can have a robot that can actually strip, that's quite an impressive feat of engineering. When you think about teaching your kid how to take off their clothes or how to dress themselves, that's actually a very technically difficult maneuver. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. movements in there. Every finger, every joint. Probably be easier to incorporate some pneumatic tubes to have sort of air to blow blow the garments off. Yeah, I point. I can't imagine the horror show that'll happen when they we actually build robots that need to get clothes on and off. Uh, so they're probably just going to expand, shred the clothes, and buy a new one. It might just be easier. Um, but no, we didn't go and see that. It was very gimmicky from everything we heard. It was very much this kind of moving mannequins that look kind of like a human female wearing a bikini. Um, which case. Hey, you know, you could have just gotten an industrial arm from, like, Honda Automotive and put a bikini on that, and it would have been about the same. Pretty much. Yeah, but uh, segueing on into robots, then. A lot of robots. A lot of robots. We saw that last night. I did not expect that. That was the last thing we saw. And, I mean, there's the high-speed precision industrial ones, and that was on display, um, which no one needs in their house and no one's going to buy. It's not very consumer-grade at all. No. But in that same booth, then, we had a guy playing ping pong against a robot. Mm-hmm. It was a well, robotic arm. Robotic arm. Well, it's a, still a robot. It's mm-hmm. not an android, but it's a robot. And pretty high-level ping pong. Yeah. This wasn't just a volley back and forth against a brick wall. Well, and from what I understood, it was self-learning. So um, it, it used some mechanisms of AI where they just started playing with it, and it eventually learned how to return... Um, and they, they demonstrated that by, by throwing different players at it with different playing styles. Mm-hmm. Um, one player would get done with it, and, and the robot would say, yeah, we, we had a good volley. You know, we got the volley up to 80 hits or whatever. A new player would come on, and their volley would be like three hits or something. And the robot would say, that's okay. We're learning. You know, yeah. and you It was ranking the players. It showed the difficulty level that it felt it was playing against in the person. Yeah. It was also trash talking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, they, I don't know if they actually licensed GLaDOS's voice. But it sounded very similar to GLaDOS from, yeah. from the Portal games. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was very similar to that. Um, I, I did kind of wonder at first when we first walked up there if it was staged. Um, I didn't know if they were following a pattern where the player, the human player, would make sure to hit it over to this area, over to this area, over to this area, and then a hard shot. Um, and then I realized, um, like you said, when they switched players, that... No, each player had their own style, and I think that was just the style of that player mm-hmm. to do a couple of volleys a certain way and then 
hit it really hard. <laughs> yep. But yeah, the uh, the ro- robot, the machine was actually able to figure that out and learn it after a few times. They had uh, some STEM projects there. A lot of them. Quite yeah. a lot. Well, that was something I noticed with a lot of the robotics is they were aimed at children, um, yeah. which I think we, we talked about, is grandma going to be buying 3D printers? No, but we're going to be buying robotic things for our children. And so a lot of the robots, a lot of the STEM stuff was aimed at getting younger people involved in, in technology. Yeah, and they all implemented, or not all, but most of them implemented that uh, that visual programming style, like uh, Scratch by MIT. Uh, if they weren't using that, they had their own, but it was still that, that kind of plug-and-play programming kind of teaches kids not only programming, but also you know processes and uh, teaching a robot certain things. Mm-hmm. Well, well, and not just that. There was one booth uh, that w- was doing Scratch, but they also had little modules yeah. that you could hook together as if it were Scratch. So you have a power module, and you have a Bluetooth module, and you have a light and a, mm-hmm. and a buzzer and all these other little things, and they would magnetically snap together. And then connect. And, and then connect and work interact. in very much the same way that you would do a, a Scratch program. It was very cool. Um I don't know. We're we're it's interesting to see what people have in mind for what our future is. You know, it's like uh are kids all gonna be roboticists? No, that's not gonna happen. Um, never, never mind. Not every kid is going to need to know how to build and program their own robot, but there will become a time when it's gonna be kinda of like troubleshooting your computer where everyone has a robot in the house and if you know how to handle it you'll be able to have one that's a little bit nicer or works a little bit longer or can do some more things. And if it breaks, you don't have to call in the robotic repairman because you're pretty handy with this and you learned a bit about it in school and you can do those things, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like computers are now where everyone has one. And even your grandma, we keep going back to that metaphor, but it really does work. <laughs> mm-hmm. But even grandma has a computer. She just doesn't know necessarily how to fix it. Or how to do anything with it. If she wants to change settings, that's when she calls in the grandkids. She, she yeah. knows how to use it. She doesn't know how it works. You, you, the, you bring up a really good point, and it ma- makes me wonder if house robots, you know, robots that go around and clean or or do something like the all, the all-purpose robots, if you know the, the general programming will all be the same. But then for little tasks like cleaning up a room or something, um, it's possible they could have those saved as like scratch files that if you wanted to you could go in anyone could go in see the code see that it makes sense because it's very logical um and move things around and see how how you know if they wanted to instead of cleaning the room they wanted it to organize their snow globe collection or something you know they could easily do that Uh, kind of makes it more user-friendly you don't have to know how to program to get your robot to do something different though speaking of robots that we both love and fear we made some friends yesterday that are some people we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on. The guys over at Furion Exobionics oh, yes. are working on their racing mech. And this thing <coughs> was beautiful. I was straight up giddy, yes. uh, for lack of a better term. I I couldn't interview them because I just had this stupid <laughs> smile on my face and I couldn't <laughs> form words. Yeah, I do have to clarify that it wasn't a mech. It was an exosuit. Exo so... so I mean, I guess the difference is a, is a fine line. I guess well, they didn't. It wasn't an auto, yeah. autonomous. Well, robot. I don't know. I'm using their their term. They referred to it as a racing mech. Oh, okay. So right. we'll go with that. It was a racing mech called Prosthesis, <laughs> and at this point, they've gotten it to be able to do walking speeds. 
Uh, the hope is then to be able to develop it, to be able to run, to jump, and to then they were they were the ones who gave us the idea or the the line about ESPN uh, to then create their own racing league, get gambling mm-hmm. on it, and robot races. And it's all dependent on the racer's skill. Or like, actually, I'm sorry, I need to back up. I called it a robot, not a robot. Right. So exosuit racing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and like Schmitty said, it is. It's like it's not one thing to hit a button. Oh, and look, it's walking. No, it actually it translated the human pilot's movement into robotic movement. So it all really came down to the pilot's coordination and the pilot's reflexes. And, and the, the pilot's pilot. bravery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I got to say, though, if you had uh, loaded this thing for combat and set it into the giant robot duel that Karatis and uh, Megabot did, I think it would have won. This thing was... Totally. This thing was built like a tank. It was amazing. Well, and to speak highly of the uh, the engineers of the Las Vegas Convention Center, this was a 9,000-pound mech that was on the second floor, and nobody seemed to be worried about that fact. <laughs> I wanted it to stand up and start moving. I recognize it was on the second floor of a convention center surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands <laughs> of people. I didn't care right then. I wanted to see it get up and start running around. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't even know that was a dream I had until we saw that thing. Um, let's talk about a very disappointing robot and one that everyone had a lot of hype for. Yeah, the Laundroid. Um, when we first heard that there was a laundry folding robot, now let's preface this, we did come across the Laundroid fairly late in the day on Thursday. We were tired. Friday when we were recording. I'm going to try to get back over and see more of it today. I'm going to try to get over to the sands and see a little bit more of it. But it what the the bill was this is a robot that will fold laundry for you. So I'm thinking, hey, great, this is an android, or a, you know, I'm going to see arms actually come out and fold my shirt. Yeah. But it was essentially a, a closet that you fed your shirts or clothing into. That one at a time, one, one at, at a time. time yep. yep. That that did your folding and and hung things up, which is cool, but did, not quite what did it hang things up. Did no, we just simply not, yeah, we, we just folded them. Maybe it does, and we didn't see it in the demonstration. Yeah, there's a lot we didn't see because they had a scripted demonstration. The part we saw, she pulled out a folded shirt, and it had taken ten minutes to fold that shirt. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they they had. Uh, we missed the very beginning of it. I have to assume they put in a unfolded shirt into something that looks like your entertainment center. Like mm-hmm. it's a huge, yeah, it's a large closet, large closet, large curio. Uh, put it in on a shelf, or uh, and it comes off on a different shelf, folded. After 10 minutes, which means that if you were to reasonably use this in your own home, you are standing there next to this thing for most of the day waiting for it to fold your laundry. So, and again, we we don't know all the specifics. We might have some stuff wrong on this. We'll try to get more information for you about the laundroid. But just the first impression. Whelming. It was very whelming. Yeah. Very whelming. Um, The thing that annoyed me the most about it is, frankly... We never got to see the inner workings of it. Hmm. If we're being perfectly honest, there could have been a small person or a child in there, in the lower section of it, taking it, <laughs> folding it, putting it back up there. We have no clue. That's part of the instructions. They say, here's the tray where you put the food. Right, right. Feed, feed your closet once a week, um, at it, least. If, <laughs> it might be cheaper. If we're being perfectly honest, all you have to do is go to any major clothing retailer <laughs> and see one of their um, folding trays. You know, they have one for shirts, they have one for pants, and it's how they rapidly fold things the exact same way every time. All someone needs to do is automate that, yeah, and you'd have more than Laundroid. And you know, honestly, it, uh, to where where this is at in maturity, it, it won't hit houses for at least five, ten years. 
if ever, I think it's more viable to go the whole Uber way where you 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 install an app uh, and say I need to I need my laundry folded and someone shows up to mm-hmm. fold your laundry. Or I you think that's the full more service. Viable. Yeah. You know, I have a bag of laundry waiting by the by the front door. Come by, you pick it up, you pay by the bag or you pay by the pound. Yeah. I, someone I can picks actually, it up. I can actually see that happening within the next year because sure. that those kinds of services are popping up all over the place now. Right, right. Um, we discovered here that, or at least I discovered that the McDonald's will deliver through Uber, which I nice. thought was cool. Very yeah. cool. Um, going back to scratch programming, I think one thing um, that may be happening more and more, and it just occurred to me while we were talking about it, maybe this focus on getting scratch programming into the public consciousness which and if you're not familiar with it it's this really cool kind of object oriented an object based programming system where you say you insert an action you type what the action is you insert this and it's done in a very colorful kind of gui that makes it really easy to grasp mm-hmm. and really kind of commit to memory uh, and there's one thing that I thought about that we actually all three of us use scratch already Schmidt of course does because he's a programmer um, I am a tech guy, and you might think that, well, sure, Zook does too, but I actually don't program. And Dr. Squishy is almost a Luddite in terms of technology. He knows it. He appreciates it. There's only a certain degree he wants to bother learning it or using right. it because just – There's only a certain amount of headspace that I'm willing to designate to what the specific model numbers on a laptop mean. <laughs> right, right. But there is one thing that all three of us actually already use scratch programming methods for, and it's interacting with virtual assistants. Yeah. And that might be kind of where they're actually mm-hmm. programming us. And that leads me directly into the hidden surprise of CES 2018. Google freaking assistant. It was, it was a lot over. of places. It was all over. It was all over. Both and, literally and figuratively. And not just all over CES, like all over Vegas right now. Um, we were at the Link um, Casino. We were going through the outdoor shopping mall, and there was a Google Assistant booth set up there with the assistants and the giant pinball machine that they had going. It's wrapped all over the monorails. It's on the side of the MGM Grand. Mm-hmm. They've integrated it into the rooms at the MGM Grand. And this is really surprising to me because Google has their own you know, Google I.O. conference where they talk about their new stuff. And here they were at CES, but not them. If if we're being Google assistant. Well, even, yeah, no one from Google per se was there. Just the LG rep who works with Google or the Kenwood rep who works with Google or. Well, I wonder if it was strategic, but we'd see the Google assistant people in, in those, in those white jumpsuit jumpsuits walking around all over the place whether they were going to a google assistant booth or not we don't know but we always saw them walking around mm-hmm. everywhere and everything was google assistant enabled everything mm-hmm. um this was at once kind of infuriating and i'll get into kind of why here in a moment and amazing this was genius the biggest problem with google assistant is that it's not ubiquitous Right, It's not everywhere, and it doesn't work with all things. Amazon actually beat Google to that punch with Alexa and the Echo. And functionality, too. <laughs> right. Um, Alexa was the first to integrate with a thermostat. Um, not natively, but there was a plug-in for it, and then the native integration came out. Google could have. You know, they had Nest. Um, it didn't, yeah, it didn't even integrate with Nest. <laughs> yeah, it didn't even integrate with Nest. It was really weird. So Google kind of missed that step. They were late to the party there. And I feel like the CES was kind of their foot in the door saying, we're making up lost time here. We are going nuts on this bandwagon. Um, uh, biggest of them was those little Google Assistant video screens 
We saw the LG one. Mm-hmm. I know that Lenovo had one. Um, a bunch of other companies, even small, tiny little companies you've never heard of had one. Yeah. Though that did cause some interesting problems when Zook and Schmitty would try to ask Google questions to people who barely knew their own products, let alone right. the, uh, the Google part of the product. That was, shifting gears slightly into another theme of the show, there was a very large gap at times between the people who were working the various booths that actually knew their product and that this was their product and the people who had just been hired to come there and read four or five different notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of the reps knew very, very little about their products. And as much money as some of these companies spent to buy this booth space, that was a big shock for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and listeners, if you're wondering, uh, evidently, today is trash day. So we got a, a, a truck outside dumping dumpsters everywhere. So um, that's the joy of having a better record quality is that we now hear everything. <laughs> um, so Google was everywhere, and it works about as well as you'd expect it to work. But it does also kind of shed some light on why YouTube was taken off the Amazon Fire show. Yeah. Yeah, because they were coming out with their own, and they wanted it to be on theirs and not Amazon's. Uh, can't fault them for it. That's business 101. It does make it kind of annoying for everyone. The, the part I say was infuriating was that it wasn't a new assistant. Right. It they wasn't anything new. They didn't have new features. They didn't have mm-hmm. a, a new integration. It was the same old, same old. And I, I think it go, just goes to show, I mean, Google Assistant to this point has been, yeah, I mean, you know about it if you have an Android phone. and that's Or a Google it. Home. Or, or a Google Home. Well, even if you have a Google Home, you might not know that that's Google Assistant. They just say, here's Google Home. Here's some questions you can ask. They never really say this is Google Assistant. But now this seems more like a push to get it as more common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what I'm wondering. I mentioned earlier about the, the time gap between when they, they make these investments and when the show actually is. This past holiday season, uh, both the Amazon Alexa and the Google products had phenomenal sales. They did very, very well beating their expectations. I'm wondering if they weren't expecting it to have done as well up to now as it, as it has in the last three or four months and getting getting the Google Assistant out there more, and that's why they, they felt this needed to be a, a bigger coming out party than maybe it really needed to be at this point. Yeah. yeah. Like they had already booked the space, and now they're like, oh. oh they, I'm sure this was a multi-multi-million dollar investment to get Google all over Vegas. All over. And when we say the monorails, like – Listening to the entire, you know, when you're on a monorail, it's like, next stop, this, this stop, that. Have you tried out the restaurant yeah. at this place? No. All we got was Google Assistant. Yeah, the entire thing was a Google Assistant commercial. Even some of the carpet was done up in Google Assistant, like, um, plastic balls. It was <laughs> it, it was kind of crazy. What it wasn't showing us was, and if you don't really know Google Assistant, you wouldn't know this off the top of your head, was that it's not a self-contained unit. Each one of these things we saw was really nothing more than a shell with a screen and some speakers and maybe a camera. And that's all well and good. It is. I mean, it's great. But all it is is a second screen for your phone. The real test, I think, is going to be a real use case scenario with a family. And we've talked about this um, on this show and then again this week is that uh, a lot of the technology Google seems to put out that way seems to be based on a single user using this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have gotten a little better with Google Home. Uh, we have it to where it recognizes each of our kids' voices, but then it, the, it stops there, right? It doesn't know necessarily know it, <clears throat> who's all home at one point. 
Um, all it can tell is who's asking the question at the time. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's not not totally there yet. Um, but just wait. In a couple of months, Apple will launch their own, and it will be completely new and unlike anything that you've been able to buy for the last two years. Revolutionary. 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 Yes. Um, so we went to Kenwood, joke. and we saw the Android Auto um, booth. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the one that Dr. Squishy is kind of referring to, yeah. that uh, I'm sitting there asking questions, and alarmingly, I know more than the other tech journalists in the room, the other quote-unquote industry experts, and even the Google rep himself. That was alarming to me, because uh, I'm yeah. just some putz with a microphone. Yeah, we, we asked about a broadcasting feature, and nobody in the room knew what that was. I was... I was kind of taken aback. Some of the, yeah. some of the quote right. unquote industry experts in the room that were asking questions were asking, oh, can it do this? Can it do this? And they were showing the same Android Auto that has been out for years. It's like, how do you guys not yeah, it can know make this? calls and it can read a text message to you. Cool. Yeah. And that's not to put Android Auto down at all. We, we actually drove down here in, uh, in a Tesla. Take a drink. And... <laughs> Forgive us. That, that's been our unofficial uh, drinking game of the week is every time Schmidt's Tesla is mentioned that uh, you take a drink. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we spent the, most of the trip down here kind of comparing features. And you don't realize just how powerful Android Auto is until you compare it to another high-tech car like that that's actually missing some of those features. So it was really kind of disappointing then to see that it really wasn't well demonstrated here now we were at kenwood because they had the uh wireless android auto um doesn't that take more power they didn't know we asked that question they didn't know um how quickly can it connect they didn't know how quickly can it disconnect they didn't know uh what happens to your phone's other connections while you are connected they didn't know so what we've established is the same android auto that has existed for years can now be done on certain head units with no wire Neat. And that is literally it from the car audio yeah. part of CES. Kind of we expected more. <laughs> we may have just hit, well, to give them some hope, we may have just hit the wrong guys. It was early on the first day. They were having some, some Wi-Fi issues. Um, be, but yeah, they, overall, there was a, an alarming lack of knowledge from some of the, the booth people, especially at the larger booths. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, we have to say, we've said this in videos. Uh, I think at the end of day two, we mentioned this. There's only so many speakers we can look at and care. Yeah. <laughs> After a while, it's like, look, this one booth has 3,000 speakers, and most of them look the same to me. Why are we here? It's like, why am I walking through Best Buy again? <laughs> so we thought that was that was the same with a lot of the areas. Headphones, all headphones kind of look the same. Cables, 3D printers, sure. I thought that was going to be the same in the TV section. But well, we came across yeah. a To a couple, degree, there were some. To a degree, it was. But I think some of the biggest game changers that I saw, at least, were in the TV section. Absolutely. So, from some unexpected sources in the TV section, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like they were talking about Samsung, and I, I we got to level with you guys. We did not spend long in the Samsung booth, and yet we spent way more time than I ever wanted to. No, I came, I very came close to putting my elbow through somebody's nose. Uh, the Samsung booth was not well laid out. There were way too many people trying to get crammed in there. You couldn't see anything. Yeah, it was almost pitch dark. And I'm not a small guy. I'm six three. 300 pounds. I can see over most crowds. I was very done. Picture Comic-Con at its peak hour with the lights turned off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with with that many people, but with one third the space. 
So well, let's talk about it. I, I identified a couple of the really big things that I saw as potential game changers on the TV side. So we'll, I'm going to throw these out there, just quick discussion of what they were, and then we'll see which you think was the biggest game changer. So we had the sound TV. This was a TV where the sound actually came from the screen. The screen was the speaker, localized and it was localized yeah. so that if sound was coming from someone's mouth on screen, that's where the sound came from. We had the wall, Samsung's giant and truly gorgeous modular TV. I think the one they were demoing was 140 inches, yeah. somewhere in that range. It was a wall. <laughs> yep. We had various wallpaper TVs that were 16th of an inch thick. Yeah, if that. If, if that. Thinner, yeah. And then the wall art. We'll, yeah. let, let, let's hold off on describing that. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the jaw-dropping moment for um, let, let's start at the beginning, the sound TV. I see this as a game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw this in a couple different booths. We have no clue who first came out with it right now. I'm sure if we did some uh, research, we could find out. One of them was uh, Changhua. Cheng Hong. Cheng Hong, yeah. It was a, a Chinese distributor of some really cool TV technology. Mm-hmm. Another one was, looking stuff. Uh, another one was Skyview, who you typically associate with cheaper technology. But both of them had this. And honestly, I think Skyviews was a better display and a better setup. But it's just as Dr. Squishy said, it was amazing. We could not get over it. Um, if there was an eagle on screen, you heard the sound from the eagle. If there was a car, you heard the sound from the car. Not from the speakers behind the TV or mm-hmm. under the TV or even the surround sound setup. It was from the car. They had a cool way of demoing that feature. They had some ping pong balls on fishing line run down over the TV so you can see the ping pong balls dancing as the sound moves across the screen. It was, it sounded like nothing else I had ever seen. Um, that sounds weird. I just realized yeah. how weird you, that sounds. Yeah, you but. have to experience to know, you have to experience it to know what we're talking about because usually when you buy a TV, the speakers are either on the bottom or on the side, you know, in the back somewhere, or you have to get a separate speaker bar. Um, but this one, the sound comes from where you're watching. It doesn't come from a different angle. So what you're watching, you know, when you're talking to someone, you see their mouth moving and the sound's coming from that mouth. Whereas right now with TVs, you see them talking, but the sound's coming from somewhere else. But this TV, that's, it works more like our brain thinks it should work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just made sense. Now, granted, we were all sitting, standing, um, watching pre-made videos where the stereo sources had been highly isolated and, and mixed specifically for this display. We were all about two feet from the display. Uh, so we don't know quite how this would affect everyday viewing, everyday stuff like that. Video games are going to be freaking awesome. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the audio is gonna, still going to have to be coded for the screen. To, for it to be localized, I mean, you were going to say, yeah, uh, to a degree, to a uh, to to a very very strong degree. So this will look different by the time it reaches the consumer market. Mm-hmm. But when it does, it's going to change things considerably. So then we also have the wallpaper TVs. A couple different manufacturers of those. Yeah, and when we have video of that, um, wallpaper TV. Schmitty and I were fooled. Uh, Squishy, I don't know about you. Uh, you. You were kind of a few feet away. Uh, we were watching this, and it looked like just kind of this, oh, that's nice. There's a sticker on that piece of plexiglass. And then the sticker changed. <laughs> and then we saw the plexiglass turn, and we realized it was still a sticker. This is a display. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd heard about um, wallpaper TVs already. You know, I guess Samsung has one. I've seen the ads for it. But it's not until you see it in person when you realize just how amazing it is. I mean, 
you hear you hear wallpaper TV and you think, oh, okay, it's something you put up on your wall. And, but it's actually could be used as wallpaper. It's probably thinner than wallpaper, actually. Probably by next year, someone will do a display where they actually do wallpaper one of the rooms in yeah, televisions. TV. And it's yeah. edge-to-edge beauty. Yeah. Uh, I've always thought for years that the biggest thing keeping TVs as thick as they are is the cable connections. Mm-hmm. You know, the HDMI connection limits really how thick. These used a, a wireless transmitter to transmit the video signal from a foot or two away. And it wasn't really high resolution. And it, well, no, it no, was, it was, no, there, there it was 4K. Tiny. But it, I, when I say that, I, I'm misspeaking. I'm actually really tired. These guys slept for like 12 hours. I did not. It felt good. Um, but uh, it wasn't necessarily a high frame rate. Right. You know, it wasn't uh, 120 frames a second level of action. Uh, I see this mostly being used in advertising. Yeah. And because it's so thin, you can uh, put it around curves and stuff. I see it like in maybe art galleries or trade show exhibits. <laughs> can we talk about that art? Yes. Yeah, we need yeah. to talk about the wall art. Because uh, so we were at the TCL booth. Uh, TCL is known as uh, the company that bought Lenovo's PC manufacturing arm. They make some phones here and there. They make a lot of Roku TVs. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I've always kind of a, looked at them as this sort of Oh, well, you know, a good enough Chinese manufacturer. They don't make bad stuff, but their stuff is good enough. You know, that'll do level tech. Um, I was eating those words at that booth. We walk up, and they have their TVs, and they're all really nice-looking TVs. They're working really well. They have uh, some beautiful features, and uh, over there on the wall is some fine art. That's kind of an odd place for it. Okay, we'll walk. Schmitty like blinked or looked away for a second and realized the art had changed. I'm tapping Zook on the shoulders. Oh, look at this! <laughs> um, it it was art. It was a TV screen, and we're probably not explaining this very very well. So it was a it was a matte finish. Matte finish. There was no reflection. There was no glare. It looked as if light was bouncing off the screen. Instead of the screen projecting light, you had to get within inches of this, literal inches of this thing, to actually see that it was projecting an image. Right. It it looked like painted art. Yes. Yeah. It was the most baffling thing I had ever seen. It was amazing. Um, and and this, con- was, this was not a, it wasn't a consumer product. This was a showpiece item just to show off. Right. Still a prototype. Still concept piece. Anyone that had any information on it. None either. of them were willing to talk on camera about it because they were under strict orders not to. But wow. Just amazing. I mean, and unfortunately, it, we learned a lot about how technology messes with our eyes uh, this week. Uh, a lot of things that we'd look at and say, wow, that looks so clear. That looks amazing. Or that 3D display is incredible. Or that hologram is incredible. We try and take a picture of. And the camera's going, yeah, no, I see straight through it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was funny at all of the big TVs. You have these 8K TVs and 100 people sitting around taking pictures on cell phones. Yeah. Because that's not going to transmit <laughs> anything. Yeah. But unfortunately, we can't rip out your eyes and bring them here to CES so you can see it. But if TCL comes out with this technology, oh, my gosh, it was gorgeous. Well, and even if they market this, a couple of years from now, they get the technology down, they get the prices down. If they market this as a $500 art frame, and that's what it is. It's not a television screen. It's an art frame. So you now have a 50-inch piece of art that I can put up on the wall and choose, but you have access to the Metropolitan Museum of Art's gallery. It can cycle through different Van Goghs. It can 
go to pieces that you like, depending on whether it's you or your spouse or someone else. Mm-hmm. Just marketing it as an art frame. I could see that as a consumer product, yeah, not even totally. the, not even to try to be a TV as well, just as art. Yeah, yeah. I did bring up the question though: How would watching a movie look like on this? Is is it so far from what we know as TVs that it would ruin the experience for mm-hmm. us? Um, and so, if 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 you could watch a movie on it and it wouldn't ruin the experience. You know, you can have it hanging up for your as your regular TV, and then when you're not using your TV, you don't have a big black box sitting there. Mm-hmm. It's now a piece, a piece of art. Yeah. So that that was just a game changer because TVs are bigger and TVs are more clear, and yay, that's cool. But we saw several things that did new stuff with the television. Um, the wall, Samsung's wall, the only Samsung product we got to see. <laughs> um, gorgeous screen. I don't know it if was that's big. Yeah, it was big. Um, I guarantee it's prohibitively expensive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, something you pointed out, Zook, we, we saw another 8K television, which is twice as many Ks as the 4s. And you noticed that one of the big problems with it was that it was not shot, it didn't appear to you to have been filmed on an 8K camera. Right, or it had been compressed. It had been compressed. So the content is there. Yeah, it's cool to have 8K televisions, 4K TV yeah. Most stuff isn't even filmed in that way. I think, I think Guardians been, of the Galaxy Two was the only movie to be shot in 8K. It's, yeah, it's been it's been five years, and the 4K content is still lacking. Granted, Netflix has some 4K titles, mm-hmm. but it's dependent on your connection. Um, and then, and even after that, yeah, like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, maybe a handful of others have 4K. Well, it's, and it's worth noting, going back to something we said at the beginning of this episode, we saw 8K displays four years ago. Yeah. A lot of them, actually. Not not tons, but we did see them. We saw them in the LG booth. We saw them in the uh, Philips booth. We saw them everywhere. There was that gigantic wall of TVs, and they had the aquarium scene playing four years ago. Um, we have video where we were zooming in on a mall scene shot in 8K from across a hall. Like, we were across the hall, zooming in on this TV that was zooming in on different scenes. And 8K just kind of blew our minds then. And it's still impressive now. But it's like, okay, we have the technology. Where's the content? Where's the content? Why isn't this going out? And that kind of leads to um, something to bring up. There's still certain technologies that we saw four years ago that we see at the exact same point now. Glassesless 3D TVs. They look just as bad now. Yeah. I have to hold perfectly still for two hours to watch this movie, and I'm the only one who can see it in 3D. Though there was that company that had had like the Kinect style tracker, so if you did move, it would adjust to you, but it still took like a second or two. Yeah, well, and it, was, and it was still having problems because it's like, hey, up to five points of glassesless 3D. That's great, but there's 300 people walking in front of this thing, and it's going insane trying to. Well, and the problem that at least one that we found it was glassesless TV. But I wear glasses, and so it couldn't track my eyes as well because of my glasses. Hey, look, there's, there's two sets of eyes here. Which one do yeah, I focus yeah. on? Um, a lot of inductive chargers. Yep. We got a, we'll got we have a review coming out here in the next few weeks. Uh, we were able to get a, a great one from... Uh, from iAudi. From iAudi. Yeah. That I'll be reviewing here in the coming weeks. <laughs> so, as we're getting kind of near the end, what would you guys say, what's the one thing that just blew you away? Oh, that's a hard question, and I, I've, I've been thinking on that uh, for the past day, and it's really hard to come out with any one thing. Um, but I, I think if if 
I were to make a decision this year based on what I've seen is I, I do want to get a 3D printer now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, probably the Flux one that can do multiple things. Um, but you are that type of person, too. I am too. that type of person. We're, yeah, we're, you're a couple years ahead. Yeah, you are. You, you're not even, like, cutting edge. You're, like, I don't know, pre-edge. I, cut, I sharpen the edge. Right. <laughs> um, like, you'd make an Arduino kit and then 3D print your own parts for, like, a robot arm in the case. That, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> um, that makes total sense. <laughs> and my brain is just kind of fried. Um, there were certainly things I didn't care for things that i did care for that i really liked are the art mm-hmm. the tcl art that just absolutely blew my mind um the victrola booth i yeah. really yeah. liked the victrola they uh, they had a lot of retro stuff that kind of combined the old design elements of the 30s the 20s 30s 40s some of the 50s stuff with modern technology i really liked that um and see and on the tip of my mind there's a couple booths we saw yesterday of just these little things that no one would have had to no one else had that were just kind of these really amazing little things that I didn't write down. You know, I think the one that, that blew me away the most is, and I'm, as we've all established, I'm the least forward, I guess, when it comes to technology. I'm slightly ahead of the average curve, but a company called RemoView, and we'll have a, a video of yeah. uh, an interview day with a great guy from RemoView. RemoView is a handheld, gimbal-mounted 4K camera. With built-in display. With a built-in 2-inch LCD display with st- with stability tracking, with selfie- some just amazing features. Had a removable battery, so you could shoot, I think it was three hours of 4K video or four hours of, of 1080p HD on this tiny little camera. And it was amazing. Just Because when I look at these things, I don't necessarily think about the tech going on behind the scenes or how much programming power or, or horsepower is going into this. I think about the real-world applications, and I could see taking this thing and putting it in my daughter's hand, and she's filming her own movie in the house, or taking it to sporting events, or taking it to parties, heck, covering a convention with it, to be able to carry around a 4K camera that takes external audio sources, battery dies, pop it out, pop in the new one, and you're in business. Uh, so that was one that just it blew me away because of all the different things I could realistically as me see using it for that was very cool and that i think that that's actually a great example too of ces because when we came four years ago those handheld gimbal mounted mounts were there but not nearly as polished not nearly with a lot of the uh they they were larger and they needed an external video you'd plug in either a, a gopro or your own phone to use as the video source this combined the video source with the gimbal with the stability with everything all in one tiny package. I actually it still felt sturdy. I actually do think I have a favorite, uh, and I'm sorry, skip back to me here. It was at the Sony booth. It was that soundbar. Oh, sound the soundbar. It had three drivers on it, so three speakers. And using that, it was able to virtualize all surround sound. We got a really great demonstration of it. It was. It wasn't necessarily bouncing sound off surfaces like some 3D solutions do. It didn't have any other speakers. It was an incredibly full sound. Yeah, Dolby, sound Dolby Atmos. Yeah. yeah. So. Dolby Atmos sound bar. It did have the subwoofer. So it was a 3.1. And then said so they had external or wireless speakers you could hook in. If you still wanted to. Yeah. It was it was very well done. And it was 900. Yeah. So it was quite affordable when you consider what a normal sound system costs. It was by Sony. So you know we're probably going to see it here soon. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think he said actually like end of March. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. That was kind of a highlight for me. 
All right. Uh, we have videos up on our YouTube channel. We're going to be getting some reviews from some of these wonderful people we talked to, so keep an eye out for those. Uh, if you want to follow us, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Let us know what you're thinking. Feedback at StolenDroids.com. Give us a call, 801-917-GEEK. Again, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash StolenDroids. And until next time, cheers. And we're going to be with you. This has been a Stolen Droids Media Production.